You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. There we go. Anybody know who this, what this show is? There we go. Who's the boss? And in this show, it stars a, a guy named Tona, uh, Tony Danza. He was a man, a former baseball player who uh, came to Fairfield, Connecticut to work for a woman named Angela um, as a former NBL baseball star. And the story goes that Tony comes into this family and he uh, comes in as an innkeeper, um, as a housekeeper, but he ends up doing all types of stuff. He's raising kids, cooking. He's doing all types of things in the home. And the title of the show is just what it seems to be, Who's the Boss? Because you can't really tell who's the boss. Is it Tony who comes in as the innkeeper, who's uh, kind of taking care of the, the mess in the house? Is it Angela who brought him in, who uh, is a single mom trying to make it as a TV executive? Or is it Mona? Everybody remember Mona, the grandmother uh, who act like a 20-something-year-old, even though she was in a 60- or 70-year-old body. This show is uh, pretty, ap- pretty applicable for what our theme is today. Um, who's the boss? This is a question that we're looking at as we enter into Matthew chapter 9. Because if you remember last week as Pastor Nick uh, took us through the text, that we saw that Jesus has authority over three realms. He has authority over disciples, over disasters, and over demons. And now Jesus is coming to his own. He's coming into his own authority. And now the question comes, who's the boss? Was that just something that happened to Jesus kind of temporarily? Or is Jesus really who he says he is? So let's, let's look at verse 1 with me in Matthew chapter 9 as we look at this question, who's the boss? He says this, so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came into his own town. Now stop there for me, with me for just a minute because this is so important. What Matthew was doing here is he's setting us up. Somebody say it's a setup. It's a setup. He's setting us up because what he's trying to do is he's putting the foci and the focus on Jesus. It's no longer on the disciples. Remember last time Jesus got in the boat? Remember what happened? The disciples were awake and they got terrified by the winds and the waves. But Jesus, what was he doing? He was sleeping. But Matthew, what he's doing in chapter 9, he's focusing in the attention on the character and person of Jesus. So he says quite simply, he got into the boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. No distractions, no demons, don't even mention the disciples. It's all about Jesus. And the reason why he's he's doing this is because he wants us to see who's the boss. What makes Jesus the boss? Well, theologians say three things make Jesus the boss is this, is that Jesus has, uh, he has a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who's offered himself as our eternal sacrifice. And not just for our sacrifice, for the atonement of the sins of humanity. He is our prophet. He's the one that we should listen to. He's not just a good teacher. He is the one filled by the Spirit of God and speaks with the very Word of God as God. He is our instructor in the things of God to heal us from our ignorance and to, and to cure us from our blindness. Amen? But not only, not only that, not only is he our prophet, not only is he our priest, he's also our king. He is the sovereign one who rules over all. And as we look at our text today, we're going to see Jesus in all three of these offices. He is both he is priest, he is prophet, and he is king. Look with me at verse, verse 2 as we look at this office of priest. 
He says, just then, some men brought to him a paralytic laying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he is blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier, to go to say to him, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, get up, take up your stretcher, and go home. So verse 7, he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given men, had given such authority to men. I love this verse, and starting in verse 2, that some men brought a paralytic on a stretcher because they brought him for physical healing. But Jesus provided something else. He actually provided spiritual healing. You see, Jesus always knows our greatest needs, even when we don't know what our greatest needs are. And it reminds us that spiritual health only comes from Jesus' healing touch. Amen? Notice what it says in this this passage, seeing their faith. Now, I'm not going to get on a theological debate about there, because there's a debate about is it just the men who brought him on the stretcher, or is 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 it the man who brought him on the stretcher and the one who was on the stretcher? I believe it was all, all five of them. It was, if it was four men carrying him, uh, two at the bottom and two up top. I believe it was all, all, all the men that was present. And it says that Jesus, seeing their faith, responded to them. Now, it's hard to see this in the Gospel of Matthew, but in Mark and Luke, they make it a little bit more vivid because you may remember this from Sunday school class where Jesus is teaching and it's so crowded and it so, uh, has so many people around him that the men get up on the roof and tear the roof off to lower this man before Jesus. This is the same scene, but as a different perspective, as a different um, uh, perspective from Matthew's perspective. And what Matthew signifies is saying that seeing their faith Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a good reminder for us that only God can move mountains, but faith moves God. Amen. They saw Jesus as their only solution. They saw him as their only source for healing and also for redemption. This brought me the question as I was studying the text this week is what is the opposite of faith? Seeing their faith, Jesus responds. I think there's couple of different answers to this. One is, you could say the opposite, what is the opposite, uh, opposite of faith? One could be, say is reason, that logic, right? Knowing or, or having empirical data is the opposite of faith. Or someone else may say doubt. The opposite of faith is doubt. But I believe, I believe that those are true, those are right, but I also believe that what the opposite of faith is, is fear, but not just fear, it's also a sense of independence. It's it's wanting to be God and to replace God as God in your life. You see, the opposite of faith is fear, Uh, and God has created us to have faith, not fear, and to be totally dependent upon him. It reminds me um, of, of a good quote that I actually read this week from John Stott in his Through the Bible Through the Year. Um, He says this on page 32 um, in his great devotional. He says this, he says, many echoes of this spirit of proud independence are heard in our day. We are told that man has now come of age. He no longer needs God. He can learn to live without God. Indeed, he can himself become like God. But this is the fundamental nature of sin. Sin is an unwillingness to let God be God. 
It's a refusal to acknowledge his otherness and our continuing dependence upon him. Sin is a, is a revolt against God's unique authority. It is an attempt, check this out, it's an attempt at self-deification. I like that. I like that little excerpt because it reminds us that, yeah, this is, these men acted in faith. They went to Jesus as their only hope. They, um, it doesn't say it in this text in Matthew, but in Mark and Luke, from their perspective, they remember him not just having faith, but exhibiting faith by tearing the roof off of the house. Now, remember, this is not just any person's house. This is Jesus. Jesus has now come back to his hometown. Now, you shouldn't be thinking about Nazareth because this is not Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 4, we're told, um, Matthew chapter 4, specifically looking at verse 12 and 13, it says, when he had heard, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region, region of Zulam and uh, Naphtali. This is a good reminder for us to say that this is a, a place where Jesus went to be at home. This is his now home, uh, home headquarters, if you will, at Peter's house. And I can only imagine Peter's well, choice words he had to see his roof being tear off in order for a man to come down his roof. I'd have been a, like to be a fly on the wall to hear that. It's a good reminder for us that God's process is worth your patience. That his process is worth your patience. You see, Noah never saw rain, but waited seven days until it came. He believed God enough to build an ark on dry land. Abraham waited 25 years to receive his promised son. Joseph spent 13 years in isolation and abandonment and as an abandoned orphan until a worldwide famine restored his family back to him. Moses and the Israelites wandered aimlessly for 40 years. Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel stood in the gap in the rummages during Israel's exile. Daniel had to spend the night in the lion's den, and Jesus prepared for 30 years to fulfill a three-year ministry. I'm telling you that God's process is worth your patience. You don't have to rush God. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and he knows not just what he's doing. He knows how to get it done. Amen? These men had dependence upon God. They went to him as their only source, as their only refuge, and Jesus sees their walking in obedience. And listen how he responds, seeing their faith. Notice what he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice what happens here. Jesus sees what no one else can see. That this man was not only had a paralysis of the body, but he had a paralysis of the soul. He, he could not walk. Uh, he could not walk and he did not know Jesus. This man's physical paralysis signifies every man's spiritual paralysis before God. Jesus saw that even, uh, that even more than physical healing, that this man needed spiritual health, spiritual vitality. You see, the man's spiritual state was Jesus' first concern. You see, if, if God does not heal us or someone we love, we need to remember that physical healing is not Christ's only concern. I'm not saying he's not able to do it, but I'm saying that's not his only concern. We'll be completely healed in Christ's coming kingdom, amen? But first, we have to come to know the one who's, who's, who's been made, uh, sent by God to heal us. There's two great things that we see in this text. In Jesus healing this man, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus heals anybody. 
But this is also the first occurrence within them. And the, this is the only occurrence within the scriptures where Jesus heals a specific sin and calls somebody's specific sin to be forgiven. This, this is very important because remember last week, I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus, I wouldn't heal. I wouldn't take a paralytic man to say your sins are forgiven. You know who ought to say your sins are forgiven to? Last week when we looked at the, the two demon-possessed men that were in the tombs, acting crazy, nobody can go around them, nobody can come near them because they're too terrified. I would say, yeah, your sins are forgiven, brother, because they're just all over the place. But Jesus takes the time to show us. He takes the time to give us an ex- explanation of of, 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 of not just of forgiveness of sins, but Jesus takes the time to show us the person and the people he's looking to forgive of their sins. This man who was a paralytic, who was lying on a stretcher, who was brought to him by other people, this man whom Jesus chose to forgive a man who's unable to come to him on his own power, a man who cannot physically approach Jesus on his own, He chooses not to heal this man's uh, just immobility, but he chooses to heal his iniquity. You see, Jesus can say these words that, son, your sins are forgiven because only the one who's been sinned against can truly forgive sin or has authority to forgive sin. Don't hit my son over the head and come look at me and say, I'm sorry. You look at my son. You've wronged him. You, you, you wronged him. You need to look at my son and apologize. Don't look at me. Now, you can look at me if you want. That's fine. It, 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 will, make, it will make reconciliation a little bit better. Uh, I, I'll accept it. But Jesus is able to say your sins are forgiven because he's saying something so much deeper than what the text is just simply telling us. He's telling them that I can forgive sin because I'm the one who's been sinned against as God. I, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am your great high priest, and I'm the one who truly can forgive sin. So he says, seeing their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. I love this because there's two realities in this life. I can be physically whole and yet spiritually broken, but I can also be spiritually whole. I can also be, I can be physically whole yet spiritually broken, and I can also be spiritually whole while also being physically broken. Physical healing is great, but to be forgiven of your sins is so much better. Amen. It's a good reminder that we bring nothing to God to earn his love and forgiveness. We bring nothing to him, that he loves us because he loves us. And he uses this this paralytic man to demonstrate this very evidence to us. This man who couldn't even go, 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 he he couldn't even have a body, he couldn't even use his body to even entertain sin, but yet he had sin. He, He had sin without even having the ability to go entertain it or go after it himself. He, he had sin that so much. He had sin that my men had to come and bring him to Jesus for it to be forgiven. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder of Je- Ephesians 2 8 that for by for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift because forgiveness always meets our greatest needs. This is the gospel message that is always preached throughout time and throughout eternity, that God will forgive your sins through Jesus. Amen? Our sin doesn't always result in suffering, but all suffering has its roots in sin. And only Jesus can deal with the root of all suffering, which is sin, and our, and our ultimate need is never physical, but it's always spiritual. It's a good lesson, and it's a good reminder
for us today. Notice their response in verse 3. At, some, at this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Blaspheming is claiming to be God and applying his character to, your, to yourself. <laughs> and obviously, I'm going to say amen. The Pharisees got it. They, they saw what he was doing. They saw the implications that he was trying to make, the connections he was trying to make. But what they couldn't see, that if, if Jesus was simply a man, they truly would be correct in their assessment. But Jesus is more than a man. Jesus is God. You see, the religious leaders rightly saw that Jesus was claiming to be God. What they did not understand was that he is God, and thus he has the authority to heal and to forgive sins. He calls out, he shows them that he's God in a couple of different ways. The first thing he do is he calls out their thoughts. Verse 4, perceiving their thoughts. Now notice what it says. We can, we can look at each other. I know in my household, <clears throat> you, you can look at body language to tell what somebody's thinking. But it didn't say Jesus looked at the body language. It says Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is it easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he told the paralytic, get up, take out your stretcher, and go home. See, there's only three options with Jesus, and C.S. Lewis was right in saying that. He, either Jesus is lying, uh, he's, a, he's, he's a lying a lord, or he's a lunatic. Um, and, and, and these three options are clear even here. Either he is a man who is lying, he's truly blaspheming. Either he's a man who's delusional, who should just simply be, be ignored. Or e- either he is a man who is God, and he proves that he is God by healing this paralytic man. I love what Jesus does. He says, listen, which is easier? And obviously, the easier thing is to say your sins are forgiven. I can look at you and say, hey, you're forgiven, but that's only a verbal affirmation. But Jesus takes it a step further. Jesus doesn't just give us verbal affirmation. Jesus doesn't just give us what we, what we want to hear. Jesus always responds and he always acts in the power and authority of the Spirit. Because remember what we said at the beginning, who's the boss? Jesus is the boss. Because he is our high priest. He's the one who's able to forgive sin. And not only forgive sin, he's also the one who's able to heal us from the ravages of what sin does to our, our broken bodies. Jesus walks in this thing in his authority. And he says, listen, not only am I going to show you forgive this man's sins, but I'm going to give you a tangible evidence of what it looks like to truly be forgiven by the Son of Man. So not only does he say, get, he, doesn't, he doesn't just say, um, your sins are forgiven. He says, get up and walk. I love that. He says, get up. Take your stretcher. Take this thing that these men brought you to me from, oh, that you were, you were lying on and go home. Go home. Jesus proves his power to forgive by instantly healing the man of his paralysis. It's, it's easy to tell someone your sins are forgiven. It's much more difficult to reverse the case of paralysis. And Jesus backed up his words by healing this man's legs. Jesus' action shows us that his words were true, and he had the power to forgive as well as to heal. See, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. But our words, uh, but our words lack meaning if our actions do not back them up. How well do your words back up what you say? It's a good word. And a good reminder, how well do your words 
back up what you say. Jesus says, verse 7 and 8, he got up and went home. Jesus always leaves us better than he finds us. Amen. He came, this man came to Jesus lying on a stretcher, and now he's walking away under his own power. He was brought to him by four, and he left with none helping him or assisting him. He came hoping for a miracle, and he actually leaves as the very miracle that he actually wanted from God himself. He came looking for a healing, and he not only found healing, but he found forgiveness and salvation. He, and notice what he does. He immediately responds to Jesus' command. This is the story of grace. Our faith has to respond to Jesus' command. Our faith is a response to Jesus' command and his authority. And notice the result in verse 8. The crowds gave glory to God. This is the goal of every faithful minister of the gospel. We, we, do, we don't want the glory ourselves. We don't want the likes and, the, and, and all those things uh, from, from social media. What, what we want is you to give glory to where glory is due. They gave glory to God. Why? Because it says he had given such authority to men. I love this because this is not just an aspect of Jesus or God being far off, but God has come near to us. He is God Emmanuel. He draws near to us and God is tangible. He is close. He is imminent. He, he, is, he is so close to us that we're actually seeing and witnessing the power and presence of God right now. The crowds gave glory to God as well as we should as we see the, the power and authority of Jesus being manifested in our midst. Not, uh, not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name. Be all the glory and honor, says Psalm 115. See, not only does Jesus our high priest, he's also our prophet. Look with me in verses 8 through uh, 9 through 13. It says this, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice this is Matthew's own autobiography. Matthew is showing us how not only how Jesus has authority to heal an impossible situation, but he's also giving us a glimpse into how Jesus healed his own life. There's nothing more powerful than a personal testimony, amen? And I can see Matthew, even as he was reading this, tearing up thinking about the way that Jesus reached out to him. You see, Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he simply said two words. He said, follow me. Notice again, this may seem arbitrary. It may seem like a fantasy, but remember, Jesus has set up his his hometown, his home quarters at Peter's house in Capernaum, and he just left there after healing. Um, Last week, we learned that he healed his mother, Peter's mother-in-law, and all the demon-possessed people that came to him. He was working on a night shift, healing and delivering people. He went away and now he came back. When he went away, the rumor still started to go and start to churn. People are talking about this Jesus and the things that he's done. And now when he returns, now uh, his, his fame and his name is starting to get out there. So when Jesus says, follow me, don't think that this is just some type of irresistible grace where he says, follow me and this guy just comes. It's a part of that, but that's not the full picture. 
The full picture here is that Matthew has been seeing, he's been observing, he's been looking, he's been hearing from witnesses of who, people whose lives have been transformed by this man named Jesus. And now here is his opportunity. Here is his time to follow the man who has so much uh, authority and so much, uh, such a strong following. And Jesus looks to him and says, follow me. Remember what we said earlier, that the opposite of faith is fear. And when Jesus called Matthew to be one of his disciples, Matthew got up and followed him, but he also left behind a lucrative career. You see, sometimes to follow Jesus requires difficult or painful choices. Like Matthew, we must decide to leave behind those things that would keep us from truly following Jesus Christ. This is a good reminder that faith is always obedient to God. It goes, when, it goes as it's being commanded. It goes when it is commanded. And this is a good question for us to think through. When God calls you to follow and obey him, do you do it with such abandonment as Matthew? You see, Matthew had a clear mind of how much it would cost him to follow Jesus, yet he didn't hesitate a moment. You see, when he left his tax-collecting booth, he he guaranteed himself unemployment. For several of the other disciples, there was always fishing to return to. But for Matthew, there was no turning back. And actually, when Jesus was crucified, the other disciples, guess where you found them? On the boat fishing. Matthew couldn't turn back. And he knew that following Jesus wasn't just following a man. It was also leaving a lucrative career. So he got up and he followed him. I love this because it's a good reminder that God loves to pursue sinners. Matthew was both a traitor and a thief. This was not a man who you want to hang out with or be seen with. He was a thief because he served Rome to the exclusion of his own people as a tax collector. He was a traitor, excuse me, he was a traitor because he served Rome to the exclusion of his own people. He was a thief because he stole from his own people while exploiting them with higher taxes and taking off more money than he should. There were two changes that happened for Matthew as a result going to Jesus. This is a, uh, he got a new life and a new purpose. And for Matthew, Jesus gave him a new life. He now belonged to the son of God. And he was also given a new name. He just wasn't known as Levi. Now he was known as Matthew. He was not just accepting a different way of life. He was now an accepted person. He went from being a despised tax collector to a cherished disciple. I don't know if that ever happened to you, but this has happened to our brother, Matthew. He went from being ostracized and rejected by society to being with the one who's actually turning the society upside down as a loved disciple. And Jesus not only gave him a new way of life, he also gave him a new purpose for his skills. When he followed Jesus, the only tool he took from his past that uh, that he carried with him was a pen. And from the beginning, God had made him a record keeper um, in, in in, in, in the ranks of the disciple. Jesus eventually allowed him to put his skills to their finest work. Because Matthew was a keen observer, and because of his ability to pay a, a close attention to the details, he undoubtedly recorded what we saw going on around him, and this gospel that we're reading right now bears his name for the insights and, beca- and, and, for the, and the detailed attention that he saw. This is a good reminder from Ephesians 2.10 2, that not only are we saved by grace, uh, faith, saved, by, uh, by faith through, uh, saved by grace through faith, but also that we are Christ's workmanship. And much of what God has us uh, for us, he gives to us long before we are able to consciously respond to him. 
He, he trusts us with skills and abilities ahead of schedule. He has made us uh, each capable of being his servant. When we trust him with what he has given us, we begin a new life of real adventure. In other words, God already knows your, your Indiogram score because he's the one who gave it to you. Matthew could not, could not have known that God will use the very skills he had sharpened as a tax collector to record the greatest story ever lived. But that's what our God does. God takes, there's nothing in our lives that's a waste of God. There's no situation. There's no experience. There's no education. That is a waste to God. God uses all of us to the glory of his name. Amen? And we have this gospel we're reading because of our, our, our brother's obedience to follow God and allow him to give him a new life and a new purpose. Notice the question that's asked of him in verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this can seem like a, a, nice, a nicety of Jesus, right? Jesus just eating with tax collectors and sinners. But there's something so much more that's going on here. Um, I want to read you an excerpt from a, a, uh, an article called The Kingdom as a Political Spiritual Revolution from Gregory A. Boyd to kind of get an insight into what is going on with Jesus eating with these tax collectors and sinners. It says this, it says, many today view Jesus' treatment of women, lepers, and beggars, and non-Jews in the gospel as merely nice, for they fail to interpret them in light of Jesus' own cultural context. When they are interpreted against the socio-political and religious system of the time, these nice actions on the part of Jesus take on incredible political significance. The respectful way Jesus treated women, even women with disputable histories, revolted against a socio-political and religious system that tended to empower men and dehumanize women. In the dignifying way Jesus interacted with and identified with beggars and the others on the fringe of society revolted against a socio-political system that ascribed worth to people based on their class, their wealth, and power. In acting this way, eating with sinners, Jesus was not just being nice. He was defying unjust, oppressive, and dehumanizing laws and norms of the, pol the polis, or the city-state um, city in ancient Greece. See, Jesus sitting and eating is not just an example of, for, uh, for, it's not just a, him being a moral teacher or being a, a man who felt sorry for these people, but it's Jesus declaring that my, God's kingdom has come and God's kingdom uh, will, is coming for those who find themselves in need of redemption. And much like um, only the sick request a physician, only the guilty request mercy. And thus mercy is only given to those who ask for it. I was reminded of this this week, actually visiting some of our people um, who were in the hospital, seeing and talking uh, and praying and hopes and, and seeing how God has restored many of them from the hospital. But as I was sitting there, I thought about this question. I said, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be fun, it'd be, it'd be quite hilarious if a patient would submit themselves to the hospital, but then tell the physician, I'm here, but I refuse to get well. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to take up residence here. I'm going to eat all the food. I'm going to take up this bed. 
but I refuse to get well. It doesn't make sense for me to get well. I just want the luxuries of just being in this hotel. This is what Jesus is speaking to here in, in, this, in this instance. He's saying, listen, it, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick, those who not just are sick, but realize their need of being made whole or being made well. I love it. I love it here because Jesus says, not only did I come here to make you well, but he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, I didn't, call, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a good reminder that Jesus came to change sinners' hearts, not to conform religious traditions. This is not an old, this is not a, a, a new saying for Jesus because this has been echoing throughout all of the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, where God says many times that he doesn't want our gifts and our sacrifices when we give them out of ritual or hypocrisy. God wants us first and foremost to love and obey him. He wants us to love and obey him from a pure heart, from a wanting heart, from a, from a, from a blood-washed heart. He wants us a sincerity of worship. 1 Samuel 15, 22-23 says, Obedience is far better than sacrifice. You don't have to apologize for everything. Some things you just simply obey and follow the Lord. Stop saying I'm sorry and just, just obey what I've commanded you to do. Psalm 40, 6 through 8 says, God doesn't want burnt offerings. He wants our lifelong service. Psalm 51, 16 through 19 says, God isn't interested in penance. He wants a broken and contrite heart. He says in Psalm 51, 17, that a broken and contrite heart, I will never despise. I will never turn my face away from a broken and contrite heart. Do you want the presence of God to come near you? Do you want God to overshadow you? Do you want God to, 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 to love you and to be near to you? Psalm 51, 17 is the recipe. A broken, a contrite heart, God will not despise. He'll never turn his face away from a heart that's broken and contrite before him. Amen? And honestly, that's the only way we can come to him. It's through our aspects and knowledge of our brokenness. Jeremiah 7, 21 to 23 says, God doesn't want our sacrifices. He desires our obedience and he promises that he will be our God and we will be his people as we obey. Hosea 6, 6 says, God doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants our, he wants our loving loyalty. He doesn't want offerings. He wants us to acknowledge him for all that he is. Amos 5, 21 through 24 says, God hates pretense and hypocrisy and he wants to see justice roll like a river. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says that God is not satisfied with burnt offerings. He wants us to be fair and just and merciful and to walk humbly with our God. And then in Matthew 9, 13, he says this, God doesn't want sacrifices. He simply wants us to be merciful. He simply wants to be merciful. This teaching that Jesus is presenting is not anything new. It, it, it bleeds and it echoes from the very heart of God that our God is a merciful God. He is a merciful God. And he desires for us to be a, a, a sample of the example of him being a merciful God that we also can exhibit being a merciful people. Who's the boss? Jesus is the boss. He's the boss not only as the prophet, not only as the prophet, but he's also the king. He's the king. Notice with me in verses 14 through 17. It says this, And then John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? 
Jesus said to them, can the wedding feast be sad? While, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunken cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the new wine spills, and the wines are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So Jesus has authority not just to forgive sins. He has authority not just to save sinners, but we also see that Jesus has authority to start over. Amen. And what Jesus is giving to the disciples here is a, 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 he's giving them a rubric and he's giving them a syllabi of what the kingdom of God actually entails. The first question they ask him is, hey, why don't your disciples fast like us? It's a good question. Because these men, John's disciples and the Pharisees, were the religious elite of the time. They were following the law to the T and even adding extra measures to it to ensure that they were following God. And they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, hey, why don't your disciples fast like we do? And Jesus simply says his response is this, is that fasting is related to sadness or mourning. Fasting is a picture of brokenheartedness. But Jesus is our king, and his coming was a transformation of everything. And now is a time of celebration. Now is a time for us not to be sorrowful. Now is the time for us to rejoice. Why? Because the king is here. That Jesus is the king. You see, in the Old Testament, God was the groom or the husband, and Israel was his bride. Hence, they, did not, they don't fast now because God is with them. And Jesus is saying that the groom is here. The king is here with you. There's no need to fast, but there will be a time. There will be a time when fasting will be required of them, but it's not right now. I love this because it talks, helps us to see the difference between Old Testament and New Testament fasting. Old Testament fasting was longing and waiting for the Messiah to come. But New Testament fasting has a past and a present reality to it. We look back to the life, death, and burial of Jesus, knowing that the king has truly come. But we also look forward to Jesus' second coming, knowing that Jesus will come again to forever end our pain and our suffering in this world. Those who celebrated the ascension of King Jesus can now crave the consummation of his kingdom. We, we are waiting and we are fasting. Our fasting is not just about lamenting. It's, our fasting is, 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 is anticipation of what is yet to come. We fast, we pray, we crave for the day when Christ will complete what, he's all, what we've already tasted and seen in him. And I love what he, the analogy he uses here. He says, no one patches an old garment with unshrunken cloth. I was trying to think of the best analogy I could come up with, and this is the best thing I can come up with, was... Uh, and if it doesn't come up, I'll explain it, what, what it is. There it is. This is what most of us are going to be doing soon. Raking leaves and put them in a bag so somebody can come and, and recycle them, hopefully, or, or throw them away. And I thought about this. I was like, man, what, you know, one thing that I hate when I rake leaves is that when that bag at the bottom gets soaked, it gets kind of soggy, and, and you put something heavy in it, and what happens? It, it, it comes out. It just explodes out. This is the, I was looking really hard for a better picture than this, but this is the best I could do. This is what he's talking about. This is the picture he wants us to see. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom has come. And my kingdom is greater than just what was depicted and maybe even um, it was even changed by the religious leaders of the time. 
My kingdom is here and my spirit is here and I'm not looking to put it into the old thing that you guys have misused and, and kind of abused. I'm looking to put it in my, in my temple who's now going to be you. You are the temple of God. You are the church of God. You inhabit the very spirit of God. And Jesus is saying, listen, I have a new thing going on. And I got new wine that has to be put into new wineskins. Hallelujah to the name of God. That he doesn't just use the old, old stuff and just tries to recycle it. But there's a newness that God is doing and has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are a part of that and we are evidences of that in Jesus' name. You see, Jesus May is suggesting the need for the apostles to represent the new patch, to break away from the old Jewish religious practices which have become religious traditions and more of an advertisement of one's holiness than true worship of God. See, the main point is this, is that new covenant truth cannot fit into old, uh, into old ceremonial forms. And this is the way, this is the reason why Jesus has come. And this is the reason why he's the boss. He's our king, he's our, he's our priest, he's our prophet, he's our king. He can forgive us of our sins, he's able to save sinners, and guess what? He's the only one who says that can start over. To say what has been done is no more, but what is happening now, I will make new. Pray with me. Father, we do praise you and thank you. We love you and thank you that you are truly able to start things new. That God, you are the righteous one. You are the ancient of days, Father. We, we praise you for who you are. And God, we ask that you would help us to, to bow to your authority joyfully and willfully. Lord, even now as we come to this communion table, help us to not come as people of old. Help us to come as people understanding that you have made us the body of Christ through your blood. That we are the living embodiment of your spirit. We are, God, your chosen people. God, we are people who've been ransomed for your glory in this community, in this world, and we just simply say thank you, God. Thank you for the work that you are doing, and thank you for uh, revealing to us um, who you are and, and what you're doing in this way. Father, I do pray. I pray that anyone who doesn't know you, and I'm not just saying know about you, but know you, who've not confessed their sins, who have not uh, been broken and contrite before you, Lord, would you make that happen today? Let our, let our faith respond to the goodness of Jesus, our King. Father, you are the priest. You are our great high priest. You are our mighty prophet. You are our eternal King. And Lord, we look to you for redemption. We look to you for satisfaction and joy. Renew our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.